Our Father, every good and perfect gift comes down to us from you. Now, that's a remarkable thought. Not some gifts that are good, but every good and perfect gift. What a great Father you are. You uh, delight in giving to us. You gave us your Son to die in our place. You've given us your Word you give us your wisdom. You give us guidance. You give us provision. When we don't know how we're going to make it through the day, you give us what we need and you sustain us. You give us health so that we can work. You give us our minds and enable them to function. You give us our health. When we're young, we always assume it'll be there. But as we uh, get miles on our tires, we begin to realize that uh, the shocks go out and we need shocks and we also need struts and that's just part of life. You're getting us ready for heaven. But you keep giving and you keep sustaining This is why we have to be so careful about complaining about the circumstances we're in that are difficult and hard. And we run into them, for sure. And a lot of guys in here are in them. And at times we get fatigued just from the battle. We get weary. We get weary in well-doing. But we ask that we would not lose perspective of all the good that you have done and all the good you are doing. Enable us to have grateful hearts in the midst of our daily life with you. It's all perspective. There is so much to be thankful for. And even when we get overwhelmed, we have to fight to maintain perspective and be thankful. Jeremiah had to fight that in Lamentations 3. He said, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And great are your gifts. What a great father you are. Encourage us with these words. As we open our Bibles, you have the ability, Lord, it's amazing how you do this. You take truth and apply it individually. You kind of customize it to each person. It's astonishing. It's the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would do that tonight. That would be another excellent good gift from your hand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
So we are continuing our uh, series, our study, which we are calling Landmines. And uh, we got another landmine tonight. I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Timothy 3. The landmine that we're going to be looking at tonight that uh, Christian men have got to be on the lookout for, it's a real simple one, but it's a very dangerous one. Uh, this, is the, this is the landmine of, of leadership without character. We see leadership without character all of the time, but we're not to see it in the church of Jesus Christ, and we're not to see it in Christian homes where the name of Christ is named. 1 Timothy 3 is all about leadership in the church based on godly character, based on proven character. In, in 1 Timothy 3, what you have going on, uh, you, you know, Paul would go on his missionary churches, he would preach, a church would be established, they'd get some believers, and Paul didn't stick around usually, not, not real long, but he would then, he, he had to go proclaim Christ where he'd never been proclaimed. So he would leave, and then he would leave it to Timothy, or he would leave it to Titus, and he would tell them to appoint elders, because a church needs leadership. And in 1 Timothy 3, what he is doing is he is laying out for Timothy, here are the kinds, here are the men that you look for. You, you don't look for education. You, you don't look for the fact that their grandpa gave $10 million to this Ivy League school and built the library, therefore they're in. You don't look for that stuff. You don't look for the good old boy network. What you look for is character. And it's all about character. It's not about net worth, it's about character. He gives him, in regard to 1 Timothy 3, he says, it's a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, um, of um, th this, this word here is where we get the word uh, uh, for Episcopalian, um, there's another word that, uh, you, you know, we have different terms. Some churches call bishop, some pastor, you know, you have uh, overseer, you have elder. Uh, we would call this office the office of elder. What do elders do? They oversee the church. We have elders in, in this church. Uh, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, of elder, it's a fine work he desires to do. And then he goes all the way down to verse 7, and then in 8 he begins to deal with deacons. But in regard to elders, leaders in the church, he gives 16 traits that Timothy ought to look for as he's going to appoint men to lead the church. Um, now what we're going to do tonight is we're going to hone in on one of them. But it's a very important one, and it fits in the context of our study over the last several weeks. 
This is all about character. Let me tell you where I'm going tonight. I'm going to make six observations about, um, about character and about leadership. And again, you don't have to be an elder in the church for this to apply to you. If you're a Christian man, if you're a Christian husband, if you're a Christian father, if you're a Christian single young guy, you ought to aspire to these traits. You ought to be looking and asking God to help you develop these traits in your life. Some of them apply to marriage. You say, I'm not married. Yeah, but you may be married. In fact, you ought to get married. In fact, I want your name and number. <laughs> little humor. Little, little Christian marriage humor there, guys. No, I mean, you'll probably get married. Most guys wind up married, just how it works. Um, the thing is, you ought to be preparing. You know certain things are going to come. You know certain things are going to come in life. So therefore, right now, you're preparing for certain things. You want to go in a certain career? What are you doing? Well, you're getting yourself, you're preparing. You're getting yourself lined up. You're not quite there yet, but it's where you want to go. Well, you're probably going to wind up married. So if you're a single guy, you ought to be thinking about that and getting prepared. You don't start preparing when you rent the tux. You should be preparing long before that. Because you see really what that is, Getting married, being a husband, that's a character issue. So let me tell you where we're going tonight. I've got, um, I got five observations I want to make tonight. And let me just tell you up front where we're going. Number one, we're going to look at the death of character. Secondly, we're going to look at the development of character. And then I'm going to switch gears a little bit, but you'll see how it synchronizes once we get into the text. Thirdly, we're going to look at the two tattoos of godly character for husbands. The two tattoos. I just thought I'd say that to shake up the older guys. The two tattoos, and you younger guys, that doesn't shake you up at all. It's a cultural thing. Number four, I want to give you four Bildungsromans. That's exactly right. I want to give you four Bildungsromans. Say now, really, Farrar. I figured this would get your attention, and I've got it. I'm just looking around the room. Let me spell this word for you and then tell you what it is. And I'm going to tell you how I got this. This is absolutely true. I'm finishing up my outline this afternoon. I teach this stuff at noon. And the good thing, it's sort of like my first service at noon. Uh, but instead of a 30-minute break for the second service, I got about five-hour, six-hour break. So anyway, I'm working on this. And uh, I'm just going over my outline. I'm trying to tighten it up. And I got the tattoo thing, and I thought, that's a little strange. And then I had this, num this fourth one. But the fourth one, I had a whole different phrase for this. And I'm thinking, how do I reword that? How do I say that? How do I do that? And I turned from my desk to my computer, and I have this thing, this sleep mode. 
you, you know what I'm talking about? The screensaver? But what it is, it has weird vocabulary words on it. And guess what word was on that screen? Bildung's Roman. I went, what the heck is that? I'd never heard of that in my life. So I hit it. Here's the definition. Oh, I can't spell it. Here's how you spell it. B-I-L-D-U-N-G-S. So B-I-L-D-U-N-G-S. And then Roman, R-O-M-A-N. I'm going to give you four of them, so there's, uh, it's plural with an apostrophe, yes. So B-I-L-D-U-N-G-S-R-O-M-A-N, apostrophe, yes. So what is a Bildung's Roman? It is a novel tracing the spiritual and moral development of the main character from childhood to maturity. That was on my screen, and it fits. Plus, I had six Heinekens this afternoon. <laughs> That's a joke if you're a visitor, okay? And then on this strange outline, the last one, number five, I want to give you five rules of being a one-woman man. Five rules of being a one-woman man. Um, if I had more time, I'd clean this outline up, but it's the best I've got. Let's talk about the death of character. In, uh, in 1 Timothy 3, it's all about character because it's the church of the living God. And God is all about taking men who are unrighteous and making them righteous. He is all about... Um, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all unrighteous, but by the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf, he went to the cross for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for me and for you. It's called substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. So the wrath of God that should have come upon us for our sin, Jesus took on him, yet he knew no sin and he was without sin. Okay? And when we trust in Christ, when we hear the gospel, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. Um, when you believe that Christ died in your place, and you, uh, the Bible says, Whoever, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. I believe you're God. I believe you died in my place. I confess my sin. He'll come into your life, and now as you turn from your sin and you turn to him, now you start following him, and he's going to steer you, and he's going to navigate you. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And this is when character starts because now we're going to start, because he's in us, and he controls us, and we have new hearts, the Christian life is a process of being conformed to the image of Christ, and it involves massive amounts of change, change that comes slowly, but it's change. Okay. 
Now, that's how it works in the church of the living God. When a church is serious about Christ, when the gospel is proclaimed, and when men begin to follow Christ, it's called being a disciple of Christ and being a follower of Christ. And so now, he's going to start working on your heart. He's going to start working on your character. This is what he does in our lives. But we live in a culture. And the culture, you see, in the culture, you can have leadership without character. Not the church, not the Christian home. If you grew up in a home where you had a father who named the name of Christ but did not follow through and live out the truth of Christ, it causes tremendous confusion. In the culture, you can have leadership without character, but what will happen is uh, the culture will die. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any nation. So James Davison Hunter is a Christian man, evangelical. Uh, I believe he's at the University of Virginia. Uh, he is at University of Virginia, writes excellent books. This is his book called The Death of Culture, written in um, the year 2000. Give you a couple shots out of this just to kind of get because we're christians living if you will in a foreign land we're just passing through this is not our home we're aliens we live in a culture that says this is the only world that there is secularism says this is the only world that there is jesus said there is another world okay so he says this we say and he's speaking of our culture he's speaking of our nation Speaking of Western civilization, we say we want a renewal of character in our day, but we don't really know what we're asking for. To have a renewal of character is to have a renewal of a creedal order. Did you get that? Creedal. A creed, a doctrine. Uh, a statement of faith. You, you believe in something. Uh, a, a church, any church will have a, a statement of faith, you see. He says this, to have a renewal of character is to have a renewal of a creedal order or a biblical order that, watch this, that constrains, limits, binds, obligates, and compels. This price is too high for us to pay. We want character, but without unyielding conviction. We want strong morality, but without the emotional burden of guilt or shame. We want virtue, but without particular moral justifications that invariably offend. We want good without having to name evil. We want decency without the authority to, to insist upon it. We want moral community without any limitations to personal freedom. That's us. In short, we want what we cannot possibly have on the terms that we want it. That's brilliant. That's where we are as a culture. What we need to do is take that to heart and make sure that is not where we are as individuals who name the name of Christ. He goes on and he says, what then can, can be said about this thing we call character? The most basic element of character is moral discipline. 
Its most essential feature is the inner capacity, watch this, for restraint. <laughs> it, it's, it's sad. Because the last thing that is wanted in this culture is restraint of any kind. I mean, we really have gone insane. Uh, its most essential feature is the inner capacity for restraint and ability to inhibit oneself in one's passions, desires, and habits within the boundaries of a moral order. Moral order. Now, see, this stuff used to be self-evident. No longer. Moral discipline, in many respects, is the capacity to say no. Its function, to inhibit and constrain personal appetites on behalf of a greater good. This idea of a greater good points to a second element, which is moral attachment. Character, in short, is defined not just negatively, but positively as well. It reflects the affirmation of our commitments to a larger community. It's just not yourself, you got a family. How many people in our culture have said, for better or worse, for rich or poor, in sickness and in health, till death do, do us part? And where are they right now? They're gone. Why? Because it was just words. It was just a wedding. Weddings are easy. Marriage is hard. You see. When you say those words, for better or worse, rich or poor, in sickness and health, till death do us part, uh, you are restraining yourself morally. But see, we live in an age where why should there be any restraints? All that matters is my personal freedom. That's all that matters. Another shot from uh, Davison Hunter, and I can't spend too much time on this as I attempt to read that small clock. The term character, as Warren Sussman has argued, achieved its greatest currency in America in the 19th century. It, is, it, was, frequently associated, it was frequently associated with words like honor, reputation, integrity, manners, duty, citizenship, and not least, manhood. Character was always related to an explicitly moral standard of conduct oriented towards work, building, expanding, achieving, and sacrifice on behalf of a larger good. Um, then he goes to uh, Martin Luther uh, during the Reformation as an example of moral character. At his trial before the Diet of Worms, don't you love these? Uh, the Diet of Worms. Now someone in here is going to go home and tell his wife that you got to try the Diet of Worms. This is something you don't eat. It, it was, Martin Luther was on trial for his life. He was a Roman Catholic priest. 
he started reading the scriptures. He could not find peace with God. He went through all the rituals. He went through all the works. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that we are saved, that people are saved on the basis of their works. If you read the, the history of the Roman Catholic Church, they had the Council of Trent. They have never repudiated the Council of Trent. The Re Council of Trent says that we, that people are saved by their works and not by grace. Not by grace. Luther read the scriptures. He got into the Bible. He read the just, the just shall live by faith. Uh, he was reading Galatians. Uh, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's the gospel. Jesus died in my place. And when I believe in him, I'm justified by faith. Romans 5, I have peace with God. Okay. All right, so he's up for his life because he had taken a stand. And he goes up before this monarch, this king, Charles, and here's what he said. And his life was on the line, and the last guy that had taken a stand like this got drawn and quartered. Okay, he expected to die. And here was his defense. Since then, your majesty and your lordships require a, a desire, a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recount, recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. That's called character. One more quote. He goes on and says, character, therefore, resists expedience. It defies hasty acquisition. You don't, get, you don't get character by going to a weekend seminar. You don't get character by jumping in a microwave. Uh, character takes time. This is undoubtedly why Soren Kierkegaard spoke of character as engraved, deeply etched, graven, changeable rarely, and least of all in extreme situations. In this, he was simply following the Greek etymology uh, of a distinctive mark impressed, engraved, or otherwise formed. In ethical terms, a person of good character would be steadfast in wisdom and dependable in commitment. Did you get that? A person of good character would be steadfast in wisdom and dependable in commitment. The very idea of character in this historical, historic sense would ridicule our modern ideas of seminars and, yeah. In biblical cultures, character was defined in relation to God's distinctive property, his holiness. The expectation was as clear as it was demanding. As God said to Moses, you must be holy for I am holy. This was not a matter of outward appearances, but rather a holiness that penetrated to the core of one's inner life. That's biblical character. I'm not just to be a hearer of the word, I am to be a doer. Okay? All right. Now, let's talk about the development character. That's the death of character, and we see the death of character all around us. 
what, as I'm reading this, the thing I got to do is look to myself and ask myself the question, is character dying in my own life? That's the question. So let's talk about the development of character. Let's go back to 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. And again, if you're a Christian man, husband, father, you're a leader, you've got people watching you, you've got people that you are influencing. You name the name of Christ and they're watching you. Um, now, when I go back to 1 Timothy 3, 2, this is somewhat disturbing. It says in 3, 2, that an overseer, and again, I'm going to make application. It's just not to the men who are overseeing the church, but it's the men who comprise the church. Because um, I, th I think we've said this at some point over the last few weeks, that if you're a husband father who names the name of Christ, you're the family pastor. Uh, er every family is a small civilization. Every family is a small church. And you're the pastor. Uh, so make application to your own life here. He says in verse 2, an overseer or an elder then must be above reproach. Now, it doesn't say that he is to be without sin because we're all sinners. But he is to be above reproach that we live in such a way that if a charge were made against us, um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't stick. Now, I need to point something out. All of these, all of these um, character traits are in the present tense. They're all present tense. Because if they weren't in the present tense, and they included the past, no one could serve. Because we're all sinners and we've all fallen short. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians 6 real quick. In 1 Corinthians 6, again, we're talking about the church. Uh, 6 9, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate by perversion, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, <clears throat> nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. All right, that pretty much covers everybody in this room. Does it not? Now you say, well, I'm not in there. I bet you are in there. I'm in there. I mean, if you just take the word uh, covet, the 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet. You don't covet your, your neighbor's wife. You don't covet your neighbor's Porsche. You don't covet your, that guy's house, you don't covet, and we all do it. And the thing is, if you break the law at one point, you've broken the whole thing. So we're in trouble. But look at the next verse. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. See, this is the church of the living God. We're just a bunch of sinners. But Christ has come into our life, and he's, he's drawn us to himself, and we've been born again, and now we're in the process of going from immaturity to maturity. I was reading early this morning 
the testimony of a guy, and I believe his name is Christopher Yuan, Y-U-A-N. Uh, his family came over from, I believe, Taiwan when he was a little boy, settled in Chicago. Uh, he, um, brilliant student, gifted musically, uh, did well in school, not an athlete, was bullied, um, decided he was going to go to dental school, went to dental school, excelled, but was expelled four months before graduation because he got into uh, drugs, not just using drugs, but selling them. Had always struggled, got pornography when he was a young boy, 9, 10, 11, found himself beginning to think Am I, uh, he's attracted to men, uh, didn't want his parents to know, covered it up. When he went off to school, he thought, well, I can try this out and live this way. When he was expelled because of the drug use and really for the drug selling, he moved to Atlanta and got into the gay lifestyle all the way and was making thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a week. His parents had become Christians. His father gave him a Bible. He really just threw it in his father's face, wanted nothing to do with this stuff. He, his, he was living the life he wanted, a knock on the door, and eight federal marshals walked in, and he had all the stuff cooking on the stove, and he was in for 60 years. He's in a cell. He's on that cot. All this graffiti from previous prisoners, all this graffiti. And he can't believe how, how he has ruined his life. And he's, and he's looking up, and he sees this. Someone had written Jeremiah 29. And later that day, he saw a Bible in a trash can that another prisoner had been given and thrown, threw away. He grabbed it, started reading Jeremiah 29, and it had the specific verse, and it said this, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for your welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Well, he had no future and he had no hope. And he was in there for a long, long time. He started reading that Bible, cover to cover, and then he'd read it again, and then he'd read it again. And then he started looking at every passage where the Bible talked about homosexuality. And he realized that he could not let feelings be Lord of his life. He needed to let Jesus be Lord of his life. And he's now a professor at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Such were some of you, you see. Now, back in First Timothy 3, verse 2. And, you know, we, if you've been with us in our study, we've, we, we started in Ephesians 5 and working through Ephesians 6. Uh, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, Ephesians 5, 15. Making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he applies that to family relationships. Talks about wives, talks about husbands, uh, talks about uh, children, talks about fathers. Well, if you look at uh, 1 Timothy 3, 
verse 2. The first qualification is that a leader in the church be above reproach. doesn't mean he's without sin. We've all got stuff in our background. Someone could say, oh, you did this, you did this. Yes, but I was washed. I was cleansed by the blood of Christ. You see, and then what happens is we're following Christ. Ephesians says, let him who steals, steal no longer. You see? So if you were a thief, you're not going to be a thief anymore. You're going to follow Christ. If you were an adulterer, you used to be an adulterer, but that's not your identity. You're going to follow Christ. Uh, look at 1 Peter 3, 2, and over, uh, 1 Timothy 3, 2, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, this is where I want to camp, because it fits with our flow. This is a men's Bible study, the husband of one wife. This is going against our culture. The idea here is to be, uh, the literal sense of this is to be a one-woman man, a one-woman kind of man. It doesn't mean that a man who is never married can't be an elder. It doesn't mean that at all. But it means that a man who is married is completely and totally devoted to his wife. Philip Ryken on this passage writes this, the point of the phrase is probably more general. Elders must be morally accountable for their sexuality. The Greeks and the Romans of the day generally to tolerated gross sexual sin. Polygamy was practiced by both Greeks and Jews. Marriage was undermined by frequent divorce, widespread adultery, and rampant homosexuality. The words of Demosthenes show the scope of the problem. He said, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure. Concubines for the daily care of our persons, our sexual needs, but wives to bear us legitimate children. You see the convoluted morality there. And in contrast to that, you see, in the church of the living God, we need leadership with character. So, as a husband, I'm to be a one-woman kind of man. That's not easy to do. Because we live in an age of incredible sexual temptation. Um, and we're beset with so many weaknesses. Are we not? You ever looked at something and you say to yourself, and your wife and kids are in bed, and you'll look at something on the internet and you say to yourself, I'll never do that again. And what happens? You look at it again. Why? Because we're weak. So my question is this. How can we get to a point where we're above reproach when we have so many weaknesses? In other words, how do you ever get to the point where you develop godly character that is consistent? Well, first of all, it's going to take time. Notice 1 Timothy 3 Verse 6, one of the things it says about leadership in the church, about an elder in the church, he cannot be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. You put someone who's young and immature, you put a rookie in a position of responsibility, and they're going to blow it up like a toad with pride. Right? Even if you're mature, you've got to fight off pride. 
You don't put a novice into a position like this because they're not mature enough. They're not seasoned. Turn with me to Romans 5. This is great stuff, Romans 5. Because, you see, we want to grow in Christ. There are all these temptations around us. We're trying to fight off temptation, but we're weak. We have these weaknesses, and we have habits, and we're trying to form new habits in Christ. And that's a good... The, the thing is, guys, you can't ever stop fighting. You have to keep fighting temptation. You have to keep fighting sin. Now, in Romans 5, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, this is what Jesus did for us on the cross, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in the grace of God. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that... The, now watch this. Watch this process. So we're Christians now, okay? Not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, or we rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Some translations would say um, suffering brings about perseverance. Now, another word for perseverance would be endurance, okay? So you got suffering. Suffering leads to endurance or perseverance. And perseverance or endurance leads to, do you see it? Proven character. So here's the deal. The way you get character when you're weak is that you just keep fighting and you keep struggling. Uh, the word translated in the New American Standard, we exult in our tribulations, or the word maybe in your translation is we exult in our sufferings. It's the idea of, uh, it's the idea of pressures. Just the weight. Uh, you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, you've got all these olive trees everywhere. And you'll see this get sim. You'll see this press, this olive press. What happened to Jesus was he, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was taking on the sin of the whole world. Not his sin. He was taking on the sin of the entire world. And it pressed him. It pressed him. It pressed him. To the point it was like blood coming out. Uh, we, we carry the weight of sin because of our weaknesses. But you see, we stand in the grace of God, and we confess our sin. Um, endurance yields proven character, and proven character hope. Why? Because God's at work in my life. I'm not in this by myself. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. And then he says in verse 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Listen, we were, we were ungodly and we were helpless when we came to him. Now we come to him. Now he's doing a work in our lives, but we're not instantaneously perfected. We're in process. It's like your kids, your little kids, your little, 
you watch them grow. And you understand, they don't get it all. They, they don't understand. There's a difference between a 2-year-old and a 12-year-old and a 22-year-old. Same thing is true in the Christian life. He's not against us, he's for us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not some unrighteousness, all. You screw up and you say, Jesus, forgive me. And you know what he does? He just cleans it all. The stuff you confess and the stuff you don't even know that you did. That's amazing. Is it not? And this whole time you're growing and you feel, well, I don't feel like I'm growing. Well, you're growing. And you're not in it by yourself. So again, I'm, I'm asking, how can we get to the point where we have godly character when we have so many weaknesses? Uh, go, go to Romans 8, 26 and 27. I find this a great encouragement. In Romans 8, 26, it says this, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. Here we are again, we're weak. Are there areas in your life where you sense weakness? That's, can I tell you something? That's good. Because it means you're growing. You know, here's the problem. Here's the problem. When we're young, we don't know we're weak. We think we can do anything. We think we can achieve anything. We think we can accomplish anything. Um, I, I saw Joe Stoll uh, did something a little bit on, on aging. And Joe now is probably in his early 70s. But he was just talking about the fact that as you get older, things just start breaking down. And, you know, if you were exercising and, you know, you're young and you pull a muscle, maybe, you know, yeah, a couple days, no big deal. Now you pull a muscle, I mean, it's a couple years. <laughs> I mean, I got on an escalator the other day and I pulled a hamstring. <laughs> That's a joke. But it could happen. <laughs> I mean, it's sad, isn't it? Uh, as we get older, we become more aware of our weaknesses. You know? Stuff you never thought about when you were young, you think about now. Because it's a different stage of life. Watch this. In the same way the Spirit helps our weakness, watch this. For we don't know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit, this, this is wonderful. You ever not sure how to pray? You're kind of confused. Lord, I don't know how to do this. I can't seem to overcome this sin and this temptation. Watch this. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You're not a saint if... I don't know, what's, what do they do in the Catholic Church? You die, and then a, whatever the terms are, and if you did a miracle, and you did this and that, and that's nonsense. We're declared, the saints are the holy ones. Not, he declared us holy. He made us holy. It's the, it's the righteousness of Christ transferred to us. He's calling these guys saints, and they sin. 
But you see, you're not in it by yourself because the Spirit of God prays for you. I don't know how to pray. Well, the Holy Spirit's praying for you. And then, and then, <laughs> this is where the Trinity comes in. Here you got the Holy Spirit praying for you. Now in 28, you got God the Father, and He's working on your behalf too. You say, what do you mean? Well, read 828. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. He causes all things to work together for good in your life. This is the Father who oversees your entire life to take you from immaturity to maturity and take you to heaven. He's overseeing everything and uses everything in your life, even your weaknesses, even your failures, even your sin. What does it say? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. He doesn't say all things are good because not everything we do is good. Not everything that happens to us is good. But he is so great. He's so wonderful. He's so powerful. He takes all this bad stuff and he makes it work for good. That's astonishing, is it not? That's God the Father. Because you see, he's for us. He does this. For those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, he's called you. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. It's amazing how many Christians flinch at pre. pre hey, what? He predestined. Well, I don't like that. I had a guy tell me in Indiana, I don't like that predestination stuff. I said, do you know Christ? He goes, absolutely. I said, do you believe the word of God? He goes, absolutely. I said, then you got a problem. It's in the text, man. He predestined. Well, I don't buy that predestined. It's in the book. And you ought to thank God for it. I, I said, let me ask you that. You think God has a plan for your life? Oh, yeah. Well, what do you think he's talking about here? Predestination, it means God has a plan for your life. And why would you resist that? Why would you not want that? Well, well, I had a plan. Yeah, and how's that working out for you? <laughs> we all start out with our own plans, and we hit a wall going 180 miles an hour and screw everything up. And then we call on him, and he comes along. The mind of man plans his way. The Lord directs the steps. Thank God for it. He's going to carry you. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. The idea of foreknew is for love. Abraham knew Sarah. It's intimate love. Those whom he foreloved, he foreknew. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. You're going to become like Jesus in spite of your weakness. So that he would become the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You're going to be in heaven because of what Christ has done. What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And he's for you. Now watch, here comes, the, here comes Jesus. We've had the Spirit, we got the Father, now watch Jesus in 32. He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Everything you need, you're going to have. And more. In his way, in his time. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies in spite of your weakness and your sin. Now look at 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Now watch this. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for 
us. Do you see the Trinity there working on your behalf so you can become mature in Christ? You're not in this by yourself. I love this. I got the Holy Spirit. I'm all screwed up, but I got the Holy Spirit praying for me, and I got Jesus praying for me. I love that. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Now we're into the tattoos. Okay? Now, now we're applying this. You got all these 16 character traits of leaders in the New Testament church. But we're going to hone in on the husband of one wife, a one woman kind of man um, in 1 Timothy 3 2. So let me ask this How many guys in here are married? Can I see your hands? Okay, most of you. Okay. I, I would suggest that the two tattoos for being a one-woman kind of man, and it's just a little way of catching your attention. The first one would be this, Semperfi Delis. How many of you guys were Marines? Let me see your hands. All right. The motto of the Marine Corps is Semper Fidelis, which means always faithful. Always faithful. Always faithful. To be always faithful, you go back to the death of character. If you don't have character, you can't be always faithful. There's got to be a moral code. There's got to be a restraint. You live according to the greater good. That was powerful last night to see that ovation for that broken-hearted wife whose husband had come under great criticism, wicked, evil criticism. And the Scripture was quoted, there is no greater love than this than a man laid down his life for his friends. You see, always faithful always faithful. That's the Christian husband. You say, but Steve, I haven't always been faithful. Okay. But you see, you've been washed and you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Or you may be saying, well, Steve, this is my third marriage or my fourth marriage. Okay. You make this one work. You're following Jesus. You see, we've all got our junk. We got, we got trailers full of junk, tractor trailers full of our crud. But you were washed and you were cleansed, you see. And from this day on, I'm going to be always faithful. And man, when you're struggling and you're being tempted, you get down on your knees and you say, Jesus, help me. Help me. I thank you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, you're praying for me and that you'll give me the strength and the power. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're praying for me. I thank you, God the Father, that you've called me to your Son and you gave Jesus to me. 
and that you've given me the Spirit of God in my life. You just call to him. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you, and you will honor me, Psalm 50, 15. Call to him. Call to him first. Then get on the phone or go see a buddy who loves Christ. If you've got to wake him up at 3 a.m., pound on the door and say, I've got to have some help here. They'll help you. They've been in the same spot. So that's one tattoo. The second tattoo is, uh, I get this from Hernando Cortez. You probably know this story. In 1519, he took 11 ships and 700 men. They were going into Mexico, climbing the cliffs at Veracruz. They had no idea what was awaiting them, what they were going to face. And as they're going up those cliffs, they looked back down on that bay and saw those 11 ships, and they were all torched and going up in flames. What happened? Well, here's what happened. Hernando Cortez, the leader of the expedition, burned the ships. Because now, there's no turning back. It's either straight ahead or nothing. You see? So you got Semper Fi, and then you got burn the ships. If you're a married man, you burn those ships. You get off of Facebook, and that girl you wished you had taken to the junior prom. What is wrong with you? What are you in, La La Land? Isn't that a movie? That one? Oh, they didn't win? Oh, yeah, I had to get that in. I knew I was going to do it somehow. That whole thing's pathetic out there. That whole thing is la-la land. This isn't la-la land. You're a husband. You're a father. you got kids. You might have grandkids, and they're watching you. They're watching you. You follow me as I follow Christ. Knock that Facebook stuff off, those old flames. Come on. Let's get to number four. I've been waiting for this all night. The four Bildungs Romans. I really can't believe I found that. And again, what is a Bildungs Roman? It is a novel tracing the spiritual and moral development of the main character from childhood to maturity. Okay, now I got four examples of men who profess the name of Christ. Three of them were authentic. One of them was an absolute fraud. But he was a leader in the church, he was a leader in education, and he was a leader in the nation. He bore the name of Christ, but his leadership was leadership without character. Now, the other three guys are sterling. Let's start with them, but I'm going to give you four guys. The first one, and these aren't novels. These are real historical figures. The first one is Abraham Lincoln. So I'm rereading a biography on Lincoln. And Lincoln, interesting to watch how his character was forged, is it not? Um, so when he was, he had a lot of setbacks 
a lot of setbacks, a lot of defeats, a lot of failures, a lot of disappointment. Uh, when he was about 24, met a young gal, in her t she was 20, knew her father, actually worked for her father, and they loved each other, and they were planning on getting married, and they just, I mean, they were two peas in a pod. Uh, genuine, had a genuine love and admiration and respect, and then they both got sick with typhoid fever. He pulled out of it. She died. And it crushed him. He thought he would never recover, ever. Had no interest in any other young woman. I mean, how do you replace, how do you replace her? A few years later, a family that he knew, this woman said, my sister is going to come and see us. He had met her years before. And she said, perhaps you'd be interested in courting. Now, that was pretty serious back then. And he kind of indicated, yes, but kind of half yes, but he said yes. This gal shows up. And uh, he knew it wasn't a match, and he knew it wasn't a fit. And it's interesting to read this biography, the one by Frederick Owen, that uh, Billy Graham and Ruth Graham have endorsed and recommended. It's really well done. Frederick Owen is the guy's name. Uh, that Lincoln, here's the thing, Lincoln really did not want to marry her because she was It just wasn't a match. But he wrote several letters to her, and because he had given his word, he was willing to go ahead because of his honor, and he did not want to disrespect her or the family, but he had serious reservations, and he put them in a letter, and then he put them in another letter, and she realized he really does not want to marry me. And she backed off but he would have married her. And then after that, he met Mary Todd. And they were on, and then they were off, and then they were back on, and she had all kinds of mood swings and would get jealous and was pretty volatile. But he never wavered in his commitment. He was a one-woman kind of man. And as Billy Graham points out, there's a difference between Lincoln at his first inauguration and his second. He obviously came to know Christ personally. But he was a one-woman kind of man. There was character there. The second man is C.H. Spurgeon, the great uh, British preacher who died in, what, 18, late 1880s, 1890. Spurgeon and his wife Susanna were married, had two twin boys, and then she became an invalid and was pretty much in bed the rest of their marriage. And he never wavered in his commitment, ever. He was a one-woman kind of man. Now, in all honesty, would that have involved their level of intimacy? Perhaps. 
But you see, that doesn't change anything. He's a one-woman kind of man. That's character. That's moral restraint. The third one is uh, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield. I've got 10 volumes of his theological works on my shelf. Professor at Princeton Theological Seminary uh, in the 1800s. His wife, Anne, loved her with all of his heart. They were on their honeymoon. She was struck by lightning, had physical complications for the rest of her life, was ill. She became an invalid and became so sick. He taught at Princeton Seminary. Their home was just down the street from the seminary building, and he never left her for more than two hours at a time, and he would just leave her to go teach a class and then come back for the rest of his life. He was a one-woman kind of man. Now, the fourth man is Woodrow Wilson, who was president of Princeton University. He was a social gospel Presbyterian. Didn't believe the Bible, didn't believe that Christ was the Savior for his sin. He believed that applied socially. So therefore, he started the League of Nations to bring about world peace. He was a social gospel Presbyterian who was not under the authority of the Word of God or Jesus Christ. But like the idea of being known as a Christian man, that went a long way in those days. He oversaw the spiritual decline of Princeton University, which was attached to Princeton Seminary. His wife and Warfield's wife were friends. I haven't read the book, but I read the book review of a new biography on his life by uh, a pastor named Sean Lucas. And here's what he had to say about Woodrow Wilson. Talks about his public life, talks about his private life. In the private sphere, Wilson conducted a strange but intense romantic affair with Mary Peck, one that apparently wasn't sexually consummated but was emotionally passionate and last, lasted from 1907 to 1915. Conducted with his wife's own apparent awareness but without her full understanding, Wilson wrote hundreds of letters in which he conflated love for God, romantic love for a woman, with a general love for humanity. At various points during the fair, he would start writing a passionate letter to his wife, pause that letter to write an equally passionate letter to Mary Peck, and then return to finish the first letter to his wife. It's clear that right, fairness, and justice through religious sentiment, experience, and ideals could not produce the righteous life God required, either in the public or private realm. He was a fraud, spiritually. He had leadership, but without character. So now let's talk about us, and that's number five. Let me give you five applications, five rules of being a one-woman kind of man, and I'm done. Uh, this is, I try to work on this every day of my life, every day. H how is it you pull off being a one-woman kind of man? It's, uh, it's not easy, but let me break it down. Number one, I'm to be a one-woman kind of man with my eyes, with my eyes. There's a great hymn of the faith called, I Only Have Eyes for You written by the flamingos. 
back in the 50s. Some of you guys remember this song. Shabab, shabab. Shabab, shabab. Let's stand and sing that together. We'll sing the first and the fourth verse. You come as we sing. Just messing around. It's kind of a, it's really a good song. Um, are the stars out tonight? I can't tell if it's cloudy or bright because I only have eyes for you. It goes on and says, my love is a special kind of blind love. I can't see anyone else but you. Do you have a blind love for your wife? It's not that you don't see any other women because you do see other women. But you see, you see, and you look away. Job said in 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I will not gaze upon a young woman in lust. Now, you don't get that overnight. That's a battle. That is a continuing battle that never goes away as long as your heart beats. But you keep fighting. You keep fighting. See, you've got to train yourself to go against your natural inclination. You see some gal walking down the sidewalk or in a store, well, it happens to us all. Every day it happens. Wearing something that's brief, she shouldn't be wearing, you know the drill. And you want to look. You've got to train yourself for godliness every day. You remember when President Reagan was shot outside the Hilton, and you've seen that videotape, the natural reaction when shots hit the ground, what do you do? You hit the deck. When, when, when shots ring out, you hit the deck. That's the natural first inclination. Everybody did that except the Secret Service agent. And you've seen it a hundred times. That guy's standing there. We saw it in slow motion. That guy's standing there. He's standing there. And the shots ring out. It's in slow motion. And you see his eyes. You see he starts. The impulse is to drop. And he, he blinks and fights it off, stays up, and then get this. He then turns towards the shot, takes the shot. That's called training. That's called training. That's not natural. So we've got to do spiritually. One woman kind of man with my eyes. Secondly, I'm going to be a one woman kind of a man with my mind. The spiritual battle is in the thought life, is it not? It's incredible. It's the thought life. Uh, Oscar Wilde said, I can resist anything except temptation. <laughs> but see, that's what we have to resist. 1 Corinthians um, 10 is talking about wrong philosophical ideas, but would apply to this. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When temptation comes, you just can't let it come and roll over you. You've got to fight. You have to fight. Too many guys, when sexual temptation comes, they turn into the Pillsbury Doughboy. You know what I'm talking about? Big, fat, fluffy guy. <laughs> you're not a piece of dough. You're a man. Fight. you got to turn into Dick Butkus. You ever seen that highlight film of Butkus? Middle linebacker for the Bears, number 51, Soldier Field. It's 20 degrees. He's got blood coming out of his ears. He's got snot coming out of his face. He's just, it's just intense. 
and that guard pulls, and Butkus is going to blit, but he's been there a lot of times. That guard pulls. He knows it's a trap. He walks in. He knows that other guard's pulling going to blindside him. He steps in, and quack go, hits that sucker right in the chops. And then you got the fullback. They used to have fullbacks. And then he takes that guy, face masking, puts him down, stomps on his throat. Then he gets the back and tears his left arm off. <laughs> That's why he was Hall of Fame. <laughs> kind of exaggerating, but you get the drift. That's what you have to do with sexual temptation. You just can't roll over and say, oh, I, oh Jesus help me, but not right now. <laughs> You got to fight it, man. That'll eat you alive. Do you always get it right? No. Sometimes you get knocked on your tail. And you get back up, you confess your sin. Third. By the way, you know what? Your wife will love you for fighting. And your daughters will love it that you fight. Well, we've ever had a conversation. Maybe not, but they can tell. They can tell. They can read your character halfway around the world. I did not have sex with that woman. Really? Well, he has a daughter the same age as my daughter. And they were in the same school system for a while. I'm going to tell you something. His daughter knew. She knew. Because she was old enough to know. You can fool them when they're three, but not when they're 13. Number three, you're to be a one-woman kind of man. I'm to be a one-woman kind of man with my lips. You know what I think that means? You're not a flirt. You don't make sexual innuendos. I've heard sexual innuendos. I was in a church, one of my first churches, when I was a rookie youth guy, and all these sexual innuendos flying around in this church staff meeting. What's going on in here? What is this? Don't be a flirt. Be clean with your lips. Four, be a one-woman kind of man with your hands. Another church I was in as a youth pastor in seminary, uh, this guy was a greeter. He was a deacon. He, every time a good-looking woman could come in, he, he just had to hug them in the name of Jesus and maul them and paw. It was embarrassing. But nobody said a word because the guy was wealthy and was the biggest giver in the church. They were going to confront him. But he did run off with the, uh, one of the pastor's uh, wives a couple years later. Wasn't a shock, quite frankly. The guy never was a one-woman kind of man. He embarrassed every woman within 20 feet of him. Lastly, number five, to be a one-woman kind of man with my feet. With my feet. The Bible says flee immorality. Flee. Well, I, I'm trying to... No, that's not porn. I'm just trying to understand the deeper message in the artistic intent. No, it's porn. Get out of there. Get out of there. Sometimes the most practical thing you can do is just use your feet and get out of the situation. 
See, sometimes to be, and you just need the wisdom of God in every situation. He'll he'll show you what you do. What do I do here? He'll make it real clear. And sometimes you just got to leave. Sometimes you're you're just going to have to shoot. You might have to get on the bus, Gus. In another situation, you'll find yourself needing to drop off the key. Please. Thank you. Or you may need to make a new plan. Stand. I think that song is called 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Why don't we turn it around and make it 50 Ways to Be a One-Woman Kind of Man? Take action. Take action. Because you see, that's leadership with proven character. So, Father, we ask for your help. We're weak men. We're tempted all the time. And, Lord, we don't always get this right. We want to, but we'll never get it completely right until we're in your presence in eternity. We thank you that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we glory in that and thank you for that. And at the same time, help us to fight and not to give up the fight to bring honor and glory to your name and credibility to the gospel in our own churches and in our own homes. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.